Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The reading today is from John chapter 6, verse 35, 41 through 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silent reflection, we're aware of the many voices that still stir within us. Voices of overconfidence or underconfidence, voices of fear or hope, voices of belief and unbelief. Most of us, a mixture of so many of these different influences, directions. We come to this moment from so many different perspectives and life experiences. And at the same time, we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, none of us has it all together. Each of us is what we might call a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us, you know us, in all our complexities, in all our contradictions, in all the ways we're really good people, in all the ways we are really not that great people. And your response is to move toward us, to give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. 
And so we pray now that you would do perhaps the most difficult thing of all, maybe a modern miracle, that you would break through all of our static and confusion with your grace. You break through our fear with your love. That you would teach us in a way, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that our lives would be transformed. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I was recently revisiting one of my favorite novels, Unbroken, which was also turned into a blockbuster movie about Louis Zamperini, the Southern Californian runner who became an Olympian runner in 1936 in Germany. And then he went into the Navy in World War II, and his plane went down over the Pacific Ocean. When they abandoned the plane, they landed in a rescue raft that I think only partially inflated, and it was... Louis Zamperini and his two buddies in this raft. He ended up setting the record at the time for most days afloat at sea without, a, without a power, 47 days. He went on to be captured as a prisoner of war by, the, by Japan and was eventually released, ending up writing an open letter in the newspaper to the man who had captured him and tortured him, a letter of forgiveness. Uh, he passed away recently, but he got to run the torch of the Olympics before he passed away over the very land where he was a prisoner of war. When the book zooms in on that 47-day period at sea, it makes very clear that when they abandoned the plane falling out of the sky and they got into this raft, they had no food with them at all except for several squares of chocolate that one of them had in the pocket of their uniform. No water prepared. And so it talks about how with sharks circling their little raft, they would try to catch rainwater whenever a storm would pass over. And after two weeks of not eating any food, because one of them in a moment of panic had eaten all the chocolate, two weeks of not eating any food, this large bird lands on Louis's head. And he grabs it. And he kills it. And they try to eat it, but it is so putrid that it makes them all sick, and they can't. So he turns that into bait to catch some fish. And by one by one, they catch another fish. And as he reflects on this, he talks about not only the effects of being hungry and thirsty and what it does to your physical condition. Your body begins to break down. He comments on how it affects your mental and emotional condition. You begin to go crazy. And today Jesus comes to us. This is the third week we're looking at this passage where he says, I'm the bread of life. I wonder if that gives us new insight. That he says, I not only come for your physical fulfillment and renewal. I not only come for your communal restoration that you be connected with others and your truest self. I come to give you bread that will make you more spiritually, mentally, emotionally put together. See, we live in a land where you can read all of the stats. We have no shortage of calories available in the supermarket, at the fast food place, at the five-star restaurants, Michelin star, you name it. And yet we are a people that are severely out of shape in every way. So he comes to you and says, I'm this bread that can bring you mental, emotional, physical strength and stability. But he also comes with a challenge. What are you already filling your life with? What are you feasting on? See, Jesus has been teaching, 
He's been healing the sick. People earlier in this passage, in, earlier in chapter 6, came to him from every area of the land because he had been growing in notoriety. And they said, teach us. And he said, you don't just need a teaching. You're hungry. You need to be fed. And he ends up feeding 5,000 families. And this had deep significance for the Jewish people because he's overlaying what's happening there with the story of Exodus. When God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt, wandering in the promised land, hungry and tired, and God feeds them with manna from heaven. This surprise provision in the midst of the wilderness. Moses in Deuteronomy 12, after this scene, he says, don't look to me, but look to one who will come after me. And ever since that moment, the people had been waiting for a new Moses that would bring them out of slavery into freedom. That would bring them out of this dimly lit life into something more brilliant and beautiful and connected and alive. And so John, the gospel writer, wants you to see that all that the Old Testament had been pointing to, all the Exodus had been anticipating, is in front of you. And it's not a program or a plan. It's a person. And he wants to be as close to you as the food you eat. God not just acting on you and me from far away. God not even just acting in this world next to us, although that's true as well. But he says, I want you to be so close to me that I become part of your body like the nutrients that you take in that change your very health and give you vitality from within. And so in that moment, the people forcibly try to make him king because they say, finally, our liberator is here and he's going to crush the Roman occupation. He's going to set us free militarily. And he evades them. And then the disciples go away on a boat and Jesus comes to them in the midst of a storm, walking on water, and says, take heart, it is I. And now they've landed at Capernaum, and he's teaching, and the people are listening intently, hanging on every word that he has to say, because they've seen the miracles, they've seen the feeding, they've seen the provision, they've seen the healing, they've heard the teaching. And then Jesus says something that startles them all. He gives them a gracious warning, a gracious invitation, and a gracious provision. First, a gracious warning. I am the bread of life, which warns you and asks you, what is your food and drink? Right now, what are you nourishing yourself with? What bread are you ingesting for life? We won't get in this too deeply because we unpacked it last week when we realized the word that John uses in the Greek for life. The Greek, the Greek vocabulary had two words for life, bios and zoe. Bios is biological life, breathing, brain function. Zoe is quality of life. And John, when describing Jesus' invitation, says, he didn't just come that you would have the ability to live, to exist. He came that you'd have the ability to live abundantly, beautifully, deeply. But here's the warning. Jesus says you are already looking for something to be bred in your life to fulfill that promise for you, 
The question is, are you sure? Are you, do you know what it is? In other words, he's not saying start doing something that you're not already doing. He's saying you are already doing this in some area of your life. You're making something your bread. Are you aware of what it is? He gives the warning, you could even take good things and make them ultimate bread in your life and they will ultimately not fill you. They will crumble. He gives the warning, as good as the manna was in the wilderness, those people ate that and died later. So the gracious warning, are you aware of the bread, the false zoe that you cling to in your life? Maybe it's the externals, sex, money, and power, the classic ones of all times and places. How do you use sex, money, or power to tell you that you are somebody, that you're going to be okay, that you can make it through this life? But often, it's the more internal ones that become more insidious. From the time you were young, There were grooves that were cut in your heart that told you you need certain things in order to be okay, to survive, to thrive. So it could be your need to be correct. You have to be the person in the room who's always right. And by golly, you've got it right and all of those dummies don't. And you're going to show them. But it makes you lonely and difficult to be around and isolated and bitter. Maybe you need to be needed. You need to be asked for your help. And if you're not needed, then you feel like you're not loved. And so you cling, you grab other people by the shoulders and say, please tell me that you need me. Or it's the need to be successful. To look good at all costs. And if you can't look good, at least don't look bad. And so you've begun to spin a web, a facade, an image that projects success. But you've begun lying to yourself. Maybe it's the need to be understood. You feel like you're the only person in the room that nobody gets. And you feel more alone and more envious. The need to be informed. Or the need to be safe. The need to be free from pain because this world gives you too much pain. So the best thing you can do is escape from it one way or the other. But the problem is the ways that you've been escaping from it have now become the problem. The need to be in control. The need to just be invisible and free of conflict. You're just staying out of it because you don't want to get in the middle of anything. And so you disengage and you disappear. See, all of these are strategies that we use to become bread for our lives. And the problem is each one of them works for a while. It works until it doesn't. And then it leaves you more hungry. As one philosopher said, we all reach for a bottle of some kind. The question is, are you aware of your own strategies? And Jesus says, I will give you life that doesn't just have you escape reality, but heightens it. That doesn't make your problems or your fears, your concerns, your questions go away, but rather you can ask those questions You can bear those fears in the midst of a much bigger story. Bread that will fill you, that will feed you, that will make sure you never starve for the things you'd most deeply need in this world, that will never leave you or forsake you. But this bread is not served in a restaurant. This bread is a person, and we'll get to that in a moment. As Jesus says, I 
am the bread that you're looking for. I'm the son that has come down to feed you, to forgive you, to renew you, to nourish you, to reunite and redirect you, to give you a new identity altogether, a new nature and a new life. See, he gives you a gracious warning. He also gives a gracious invitation. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Later on, they ask, who do you think you are? And he quotes Isaiah in verse 55. All shall be taught by God. Everyone and all. As we pointed out last week, the Greek word that John uses for everyone means everyone. And the Greek word that John uses for all is all. This invitation is without limit in its generosity. This invitation is without exhaustion. I think of this funny scene in the show Park and Rec where the character Ron Swanson goes to a restaurant. And Ron Swanson's like big mustached, man's man, meat eating, you know. And he goes, give me all the bacon you have. And they say, yes, sir. And he goes, now I know, what I, think, I know what you think I mean. You think I mean this man wants a lot of bacon. I'm saying go to the kitchen and cook all the bacon you have in the refrigerator and serve it to me now. In other words, he's saying, don't underestimate me. Just listen to my words and do what I say. Trust me. And I think Jesus, as he says, all, all shall be taught by God. Everyone who comes to me will never die but will have eternal life. I think there's a part of us that goes, I think what he means is like 80% or maybe 90. Or maybe he's like really great and really kind, really generous. And what he means is 99% of you. But there's some of you that just, it's not for you. Because of what you've done, because of what's been done to you, because what's been said about you, because of your history, because of your particular temperament or personality, and you think, this isn't for me. And I want you to hear him say, all. It's for you. Now here's the problem. We have difficulty receiving gifts. The other issue is that apparently Jesus, as it says in, um, back in Isaiah, Jesus was, must not have been all that impressive in the moment. As Isaiah said, he had no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus stands up and makes this magnanimous statement. Everybody come to me. I'm the bread of life. And the people's response in verse 41, did you catch this? They began to complain about him. Who does he think he is? We know his mom. We know his address. We know where he lives. Who does he think he is? The audacity of these people. But note Jesus' response. Does he say, I'll show you, roll up his sleeves, and throw a fireball at a tree? No. Look at the patience with which Jesus responds to their doubts, to their questions. He's tenacious. He returns to confidence of God the Father to actually be at work in this world and in our doubts and in our questions. And he says, my Father will have to do it for you. My Father will have to do some sort of powerful work in your heart to draw you to me, or else you never will come. And Jesus seems pretty confident in his Father's work. Verse 44, he says, No one can come to, the Father, come to me unless you're drawn by the Father. So here he offers the grace of faith. 
See, if you think that being a Christian means, when I say to you, why are you a Christian? You say, because I believe, because I trust because I've really worked hard. I go to church and I go to community group and I go to midweek prayer and I show up for Know Your Neighbor and I do all these things. I've believed. I've got this strong belief. I hear about people talking about strong Christians. Someone told me the other day, I want to introduce you to a super Christian. I said, I can't wait. I've never met a super Christian. Because if you think your connection to God is based on your ability to muster up some sort of strength or power and do something, then that's going to fill you with both pride and fear. Pride toward those who don't seem to get it, because you're better than them, because you've done it after all. And fear, because when that dark night of the soul comes, and you begin to feel alone, and you say, what is happening to me? Maybe God's not here. But a Christian is someone who can say, I am a Christian, not because of the things I've done, And not because I've been able to muster up some sort of belief or faith, but because God has broken through and I'm as surprised as anybody else that I actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm surprised as anybody else that I'm a Christian. I've tried to walk away so many times and no matter where I walk, he ends up being right there waiting for me. That's why I'm a Christian. Because of the grace of God. Because God is doing something in your life and in your heart. And so the hardest work you have to do is receive it. But as you do, it leads toward humility. Because you say, I have no stones to throw at anybody. I'm no better than anybody. It took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to make me right with him. So of course I approach others, especially others who are different than me, with humility, with charity, with grace, with patience. It means you can be patient with yourself. Because God is at work. Whether or not you can see it or perceive it in this moment. It's a gracious invitation and assurance. And then it's almost as if Jesus is anticipating the next question. Anticipating the question as they say, who can be drawn? Who would it be? And then he says, as we mentioned in verse 45, and they all shall be taught by God. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'll leave the who in God the Father's hands. But I'm confident that it's much bigger, wider, larger, stronger than you could possibly imagine. Far more inclusive. Far more generous. Because God has created it all. Created each of us in God's image and likeness. Why would he not be out to redeem and restore it all? But here's what we do know. You are part of the who. Right now. You are being invited. You are being promised. You are being taught. He says, I am the bread of life. All, you, now, who come to me, will never die but have eternal life. And then he gives a gracious provision. Because a meal is being talked about from here on, immediately following what we just read. We went over it a bit last week. I want to take a moment and zoom in on where Jesus takes this. And you have to bear with me to the end of this reading. I'll try to make it as quick as possible here. Because he walks through some really difficult territory. So he's talking about the bread of life. And then he gets into, as the crowd is disputing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. It gets weirder. 
For, the flesh, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. So immediately someone says, this is the grossest thing I've ever heard. Eat flesh? Drink blood? Yuck. What kind of sickos are these people? Now, we said last week, but we have to underscore, this is not advocating cannibalism. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. In fact, part of the Jewish law, the kosher law, was that you were not to eat the blood of any animal, which is why to this day in Jewish, jelly, in Jewish delis that the blood has been drained out of all the animals, lest anybody unknowingly eat or drink any blood. So obviously... It's not talking about cannibalism. Let's just get that out of the way right there. But Jesus does say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What could that possibly mean? It overlays with a story in the Old Testament. When King David is in this battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines have overtaken the town of Bethlehem, and one day David says to three of his mighty men, Three of his top Navy SEALs, well-trained, well-armed, brave. And he says to them, Oh, how I long for a sip of water from the well of Bethlehem. And these three mighty men, under the cover of darkness, bravely go behind enemy territory, risking their own lives with every step, and actually bring back buckets of this water. And they pre present it to David proudly, and he says, Far be it from me to drink the blood of my men. In other words, he's saying, and he ends up pouring the water out as an offering to God. In other words, what he's saying is, how could I profit from their potential death? Why should I gain because they put their lives on the line? I will not drink the blood of my men. And now you see Jesus saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, take me into your life as true sustenance. What is he saying? I've done it all for you. I not only risked my life for you, I gave my life for you. On the cross, I absorbed. I took upon myself all of the false breads of your life. All of the things you've done and all the things that have been done to you. All the ways you've wandered in the wilderness, feeding yourself with whatever you could, continuing to go on anxious and hungry. I took it all upon myself so that you don't have to. In my resurrection, I show you that the final word on this world is not your hunger, but feasting and delight. Is not your fear, but hope. Is not death, but new life. It's not darkness, but light. This universe and your life do not continue to get dimmer and dimmer like a candle extinguishing until it finally goes out with one last little puff of smoke, but rather, all of history is going somewhere. And it's going to an eternal banquet where people of every ethnicity and culture and language stream together around the throne of God and death itself is no more. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Take this story into your life and make it a part of you. See, that's what we do every Sunday when we come to this table. We feast on his story. We're not only cognitively reminded of his life, death, and resurrection, we're actually physically absorbing his life, death, and resurrection into us. Now, 
Mechanically, how does that work? I can't diagram it for you. It's been tried. You know, the Roman Catholic medieval perspective would say that it, this bread and this wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. If you go to a Baptist church, they will more likely say this is a memorial. This is simply bread, simply wine or, or juice, and we're remembering Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As Reformed Protestants, we say yes. It's both and. Is Jesus present in this bread and in this wine? He promises to be, so I trust that he is. Can I explain it to you? No. And by the way, when I'm saying that, I'm not only speaking as, you know, Pastor Matt, who's been in ministry for 19 years. That's a quote from John Calvin, one of the great reformers. But that's part of the point. Even in John chapter 6, when Jesus is explaining all of these things to the people, nobody gets it. And he says, don't worry, God will do something in the midst of your life as you draw toward me. And so as you consider coming to this table today, come hungry, come thirsty. Let this be a realignment of your life where you say, here are all the ways that I have been seeking to feed my hunger and it's not working. Jesus, I return to you. Jesus, I come to you for the first time. I receive you into my life. And as you do, you have new nutrition. You have new nourishment that not only physically propels you out into this world to be hands and feet, agents of God's renewal wherever you go, but you have this reminder every day that he is closer to you than the air you breathe, than the nutrients that you take into your body, that God is with you, and he would never leave you or forsake you. Friends, as we do that, your life becomes an epicenter that can be only described as a feast and a banquet, feeding the hungry, caring for the needy, moving toward the pain points of others. And as you pour yourself out, you are still filled back up. One person does that, it could change the neighborhood. A whole church does that, it could change the world. And that's our calling. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you now in needy and hungry people. And so we pray, as you promised, Jesus, that you would feed us and nourish us now. Break through with your Holy Spirit and give us clarity of mind and heart for the ways we are invited to turn to you with your gracious warning that we've been feasting on food that doesn't last, which is why we are hungry. But your gracious invitation, all who are hungry, come to me. Everyone who eats this bread will never die but have eternal life. And Lord, as we prepare to come to this table, help us to receive your gracious provision. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.